Welcome to the Thrive Podcast, the place where you will get to know inspiring real-life women who dare to do the uncommon. They embrace who they are in their life's purpose, and most importantly, they thrive because of it. I am Olga Mueller, a personal success coach and speaker, passionate traveler, and unshakable believer that everyone deserves to live a life they love without ever having to feel guilty about it. Each week, I will introduce you to powerhouse women from all around the world to show you that you can create a fulfilling life you love, no matter the circumstances, personal history, or topic. Me and my fellow ladies are here to bust your fears, your feelings of guilt and shame, and boost your confidence to a whole new level where you are finally able to see that I can do it too. Get ready to dare, embrace, and thrive unapologetically with us. Let's do this. So welcome to an episode of the Thrive Podcast. Today, I have a very inspiring woman with me. Her name is Kira Weckett. She's for, she's joining us from Portland, from the United States. And uh, Kira is a therapist, an artist, and a public speaker working to help people move from chaos to calm and live as authentically as possible and live the life they deserve. She herself knows firsthand what it feels like to play and live small, and she's done doing that. After suffering for over a decade for an intensive eating disorder and PTSD, she founded Reclaim Beauty in 2016, aiming to help anyone reclaim the idea that they are inherently worthy and beautiful on the inside and out. In her most recent efforts with the project, she has been creating a documentary to bring into schools and communities to have a necessary conversation about identity and how we can support diverse identities and backgrounds and truly become inclusive in our culture and communities. So welcome to the Thrive Podcast, Kira. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Me too. I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for allowing me to be a part of this. No, like, of course, but <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are more happy to have you here because I feel you have such a strong story to share with the world and um, also so inspiring the current project that you're working on. And I'm so eager to share with everybody because I feel like, especially for women um, who have to, you know, I feel like really fight um, this battle against perfectionism in beauty and, you know, how to, how to show up in this world. And, um, so I really find your project so cool and that it's really giving people a platform to really, you know, show their own individual beauty and really, you know, love the, the individualities about themselves. And so, I mean, Due to your own history and experiences, really, topics such as beauty and inclusion and worth have become, like, super, super important with everything that you do, right? And so, could you explain to the listeners, really, why those topics have become so important for you and, you know, how your own story has to actually do with those topics? Yeah, absolutely. I think... For so many of us, the points that we find passion and energy really derive from our own experiences. And growing up, I went through a significant amount of trauma. My mom was living with an undiagnosed mental health disorder and was struggling with a drug addiction that was in relation to untreated mental health issues. And so I lived with her for the first decade of my life mm -hmm. and then was moved around to different family homes while she was in and out of 
jail and prison or was homeless or using. Mm. And so the first years of my life, even with her, we moved a lot. Again, that's kind of a product of somebody that experiences bipolar disorder is there can be different facets and ways it shows up. In my mom's case, it showed up with a lot of sort of excess energy and constantly changing and evolving. And so my my job was just to sort of pick up and move with her wherever we went. And then that yeah. theme sort of followed when it went to me living with other family members and just really trying to navigate what that means to constantly feel uprooted. And so naturally I felt really disconnected, mm-hmm. I think from the world, but also just from connection to others. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom, she and I have an amazing relationship and we've been able to survive a lot, but in the depths of her mental health disorder and her drug addiction, she wasn't really my mom. And mm-hmm. so I didn't really have a lot of connection and then I would move schools so much. So by the time I was 11, I had moved to nine different schools yeah. and I had constantly tried to figure out how to be the chameleon. You know, you mm-hmm. walk in and you figure out how do I act the way that everybody else is acting to fit in and to feel like I can connect. And so this idea of inclusion became more about a performance rather than showing up authentically me. Because mm-hmm. one, I think I didn't really have the chance to figure it out. But two, it was safer this way because it was the fastest way to sort of rapidly morph into whatever community I was in. And I think alongside all of that, our bodies respond to trauma. And so my body fluctuated with weight, with different health issues that I went through, so many different things. And so when I, by the time I was in late middle school and high school, my weight had gone up and down. At that point, it was a little bit higher. And a lot of the people that were, you know, in that in-group I just so badly wanted to be a part of were very different in their appearance. They Mm -hmm. were the girls that were on volleyball together and they'd all run around and sports bras and spandex shorts. And I was in this like oversized, hideous gym uniform because I just, I didn't look like them. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of this blending of both sides. It felt like if they knew the real me on the inside, like nobody knew I was on free and reduced lunch. Nobody knew that my mom was in prison. Nobody Mm -hmm. knew all of these facts about me. And then it was like, the outside of me doesn't even fit in. And so I kept morphing externally and internally to try to be this thing everybody wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that experience, I think, just made it come to fruition to me of I'm not the only person that struggles with that. That's a pretty normal experience just to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. And so those things being my own struggles, I think, became pertinent for me to bring light to is there a struggle for everyone. Mm. And who did you who did you most have to be for people back then I think the the two things that really kind of became a theme was to be the person that made everybody feel good mm. so I really took on this persona of being the funny one the one that could make everybody feel included it was very much this Now I know it's coming from a place of shame. I basically took on this role of being the people pleaser and being subservient Mm -hmm. to those around me. If I could offer something, it was a a falsely guaranteed connection to others. Mm -hmm. And so I think it became a lot of that. And then the second part of it was absorbing everybody else's chaos. And so... Mm -hmm as a protection from people getting to know me, I became the person that everybody would go to and talk to and tell all their secrets to 
but none of them actually knew anything I was going through. And so it kind of worked to keep people at a distance, but in the same way, it worked to keep me as valuable because I became that person for everybody else. And who was Kira really on, on the inside? And actually, how aware were you as a, as a teenager or even like a little child about, you know, really having to put up um, some kind of mask and knowing at the same time that this is not you, that the real you is different? So I think it's really interesting now looking back on it. I was reflecting on there's a poem in one of those like chicken soup for the mm -hmm. teenage soul books that was a huge deal, you know, 20 years ago. They There was a, a poem in one of them that was called The Paintbrush or mm -hmm. Paintbrush. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it talked about this child who had felt like they had to put on all these different layers. And they were asking through their poem of patience and forgiveness and time while they were learning how to take those layers off. Mm -hmm. And so I read this in seventh grade and I was like, holy shit, that's what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. I feel like everything has become a new layer. Like I keep, I move or something happens and I just try to touch it up and put a new mm -hmm. layer of paint over it to try to perfect my appearance. And so I would say going into high school, I was really aware I was doing it but it was almost like I couldn't stop it. Like there would be a part of me that would like sit above and could see like, no, this is not the real you. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would see myself like just sort of coming into that. Like I would hang out with these groups of people that I had nothing in common with them and found them to be horrible humans. Like they mm -hmm. would put other kids down, make other people feel small and so I would spend all this time with them and then behind the scenes try to like really quickly go and like talk to these other people and make them mm -hmm. feel less small and tell them they're okay. And so it would be little ways that like the real me would come out, but it was in secret in a lot of aspects because yeah. I needed to be perceived, right, as being this person that everybody wanted me to be. And I found it so actually like very powerful that at seventh grade, you you actually got to that awareness already. I mean, even though you felt mm -hmm. like you couldn't stop it, but you know, I want everybody to, to become aware, really, because we're all doing that unconsciously. Take on personas, take on personalities, because at a certain point when we're little, we all learn somehow that just being ourselves is not, you know, good enough anymore. We have to follow some rules. We have to become somebody to get certain attention or, you know, um, some kind of substitute of love. And so um, I find it actually very important for people to reflect about it for themselves because that in itself will give so many hints and so many clues about, you know, why... Um, for example, you are um, taking on all that emotional garbage from other people or mm -hmm. why you're pleasing so much, why you're so afraid of being rejected, etc. And so some people don't will never become aware of that. And for you to become aware of that, at, with like, what, what what is it? Like 12, 13, 14 12, years 13. old? Yeah. yeah. It's like incredible. And so could you then share with us, you know, How did that eating disorder manifest in all of that? Like, where did that come from? So I think my disconnection from my body came really pretty early on. Mm -hmm. I I had never really felt I was an only child. It had just been me and my mom. And I had 
food was never something that I struggled with. I never looked at my body and compared to other people. I mean, I was also growing up right before social media was taking over. And so I think I was facing a lot less pressures than Mm -hmm. what me now working with a lot of teens, what they face, right? And so I had this awareness I had a body, but it wasn't until middle school, high school time that I started to become aware my body looked different from Mm -hmm. a lot of other people. And I remember this like telltale sign to me that I felt like I was fat is when I started to, I developed pretty early. And so I got my period at 10. I had, you know, breasts a little earlier than other people, but I would look down and there became a time that my stomach stuck out more than my breasts. And to me, that was a sign that I was fat. Like suddenly I'm, you know, 12 years old telling myself I'm fat because I have extra weight in my stomach and, mm-hmm. and who knows, right, what I, what that really was or mm-hmm. what it meant. But it became this thing to me that then was like, there's something wrong with your body. And I would see my family and see a lot of the people in my family are really overweight and there's a, a strong addiction pattern in my family. So a Mm -hmm. lot of substance use, a lot of other components. And so I think on the one hand, I was sort of, I had this predisposition to addiction. Mm -hmm. I was so removed from drinking drugs. I don't, didn't want to try any of that. I didn't Mm -hmm. drink until I was out of high school, right? I'm like, I don't want to become this. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to worry about, you know, falling into that. But I would start to see that food became this thing that I had this slightly different relationship with once I became aware my body looked different. And I would there were little comments that people would make. So one of the most pivotal things that I think happened to me that started to make me feel like I had to do something Mm -hmm. was I was in my freshman year or eighth grade. So right around like 14 years old, my cousin's birthday, I had lived with this family for a long period of time. And so we all lived so relatively close. I was living with my grandma at the time. And my grandma and I had gone over there for his birthday And my role and sort of the joke nickname I had had when I lived in that household was Cinderella. Like Mm -hmm. my job was to earn my keep because they were, quote, doing me a favor by letting me live there. And so I had this very natural role whenever I would go back to sort of go back into that service role. And so one day I was serving cake to everybody. We He loved uh, Dairy Queen ice cream cakes. So we had this ice cream cake and I think my aunt or somebody had cut pieces and just put them all on plates. Mm-hmm. I was grabbing plates, taking them out, getting everybody cake. I go in to grab a piece of cake for myself. And from about 10, 15 feet away, I hear my aunt say to me, of course, you'd grab the biggest piece of cake. And I, I don't think in that moment it was like, oh, boom, here's your eating disorder. But mm-hmm. I think it laid a foundation in me of how wow, you already feel so shitty in your body. You already feel like like any child whose parents are struggling with anything and can't be there for them. We don't have the cognitive capacity to know that's not about us, right, in that mm. moment. So it feels like my mom doesn't even want me. And now I see something wrong with my body. Holy shit, other people do too. And so at first it very much morphed into I sort of took on the role of being like the fat, funny friend. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't like start behaviors, but the negative self-talk, the eating disorder voice got really loud. What were things that you were hearing? Things like, you're a piece of shit. Hmm. You, I can't believe you think anybody would love you or care about you. Every time, like, I would date somebody, if they would touch my side or touch someplace where I felt like they would feel fat, it would be like, oh, you're so disgusting. I can't believe that you would let them touch you and things like that. It was... I started to get some thoughts about food around that time of like, 
this food is good, this food is bad, and some of the in, like early onset rules mm-hmm. of what I should and shouldn't do. But I would say the beginning part of my eating disorder was just a lot of really shitty thoughts that I tried to avoid and run from that mm-hmm. caught up to me a few years later, and that's when it sort of took over. And I started, most of it started to really happen in college where it got really bad. Um, Suddenly calories were published on everything. And so Mm -hmm. I became aware of calories. Again, good, bad food started to become this thing my brain did. I started cutting out food. I was losing a significant amount of weight. And where I think the power geared up was a lot changed for me. Suddenly more people wanted to date me. I got way more opportunities. I got Mm -hmm. promotions. I got offers purely for showing up people would comment about my body all the time and I was like this is what this feels like fuck yeah I want to live this life you know so it's but then what happens is you it becomes this thing you can't maintain and so Mm -hmm. you it just reaches for something desperate so at first it was avoidance then it was restriction then that's really hard to maintain. And so then it became a lot of purging and other compensation factors. There was a lot of binging. And so my body, I think, just went through cycles of abuse from this thing in my brain that promised Mm. me, if you just listen to me, I'll make you good enough. If you just do what I tell you, you'll be loved. And so that, I think, keeps you in this perpetual cycle of trusting it because you feel like if if there's no guarantee anybody's going to love you, why not try this thing that something is promising you would make them? Wow. And what would you say, or how bad did it get? Like, what was your darkest moment that you're willing to share with us? Yeah, I mean, so the hard part is, I think similar to the existence in like where I was describing feeling like I could watch myself from above, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop myself. It felt like the eating disorder was, was another manifestation of that. And so, I mean, there were moments where I, like my husband one time walked in on me and I was purging and he like sees me making myself throw up in the toilet and like that you feel so much shame Mm-hmm. Or when I had an anxiety attack going out to dinner with a bunch of friends because I couldn't find anything on the menu that mm-hmm. fit with what my eating disorder was saying. And so I had I had a full-blown panic attack and had to leave. I think the problem is, though, that you're existing in shame all the time, that there mm-hmm. are these moments I can tell you about. I mean, there was a time I was hospitalized because I couldn't even walk for a while. And... They couldn't figure out what it is, and they started telling me they thought I was having a pulmonary embolism, and my oxygen was really low. It turns out all of it was a complication from this thing that you feel like you should be strong enough to stop because nobody tells you, no, your brain is physiologically and psychologically addicted. This is a mental illness. Mm. And so it was a lot of, and the belief that I fight now as a therapist is, People think it's a choice. People think it's a convenience or a vanity thing. Like, yeah, there was a part of me that wanted it, but it's not like I looked in the mirror and was like, I look amazing and thought all these great thoughts. Every day I'd look in the mirror, I could pick seven new things that were problematic. And so I would say if I had to sort of think about the deepest place mm-hmm. my mind went yeah. in it, not so much the the, the behaviors or those mm-hmm. moments that I hate that were a part of it, but... It's probably when you would 
there would be a moment, like if I binged and then I purged or if I had compensated in some other way, maybe laxative mm-hmm. or something else, there's a moment when all of that's done, like when you finish purging, where you're like just exhausted, you're laying on the floor or you're laying on your couch and you just feel so empty and alone and you feel like even more as though you're unlovable because you can't even keep this thing in check. You can't even stop yourself from from engaging in these behaviors or doing these things. And it just makes you feel like you're so broken. Mm-hmm. And then that's where it gets the power. So it amps up again and that's why you're stuck. But I think those moments of loneliness and just despair are the points that we hit that we just feel like we're going to have to accept and exist in because we don't see a way out of the eating disorder. Mm. And looking back, I mean, now you have more consciousness, but back then what was, let's say, beauty and, um, yeah, especially um, beauty, I guess, um, and health all about for you? What did that mean? I think so much of it was, derived from external motivation and validation at that point. Like I, I was always chasing an idealized version of myself to be good enough. And so it was that I needed to look like, I remember, uh, what's the model's name? Kate Moss. I think Mm -hmm. it's her name. And she made this comment. This was probably around my teen years or maybe it was college but she said, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels, which is like looking back on it, if I could metaphorically throat mm-hmm. punch her, I would and make her never say that comment because mm-hmm. too many, not just girls, you know, however somebody identified in terms of gender, too many people heard that and idealized people like her and wanted to look like her because the perception was if you could look like these people, those people are happy. Mm. You know, you saw the magazines, you saw the TV shows, even the, even my friends that were skinnier, right? They seemed, everything seemed to be easier. And my life was easier when I was Mm. thinner. People seemed more powerful. And so everything then became equated to if you're skinny, then you're healthy. If you're skinny, then you're beautiful. If you're skinny, your life will be worthy. And so everything I think to be boiled down to being skinny and to being in a thin body versus what does it truly mean to be beautiful? What does it mean to be worthy? What does it mean to be healthy? Mm. Because none of those things now in my more rational thought and out of the depths of the eating disorder make me feel that way. But my eating disorder went we're going to narrow your focus on to being skinny. And if you chase that, everything else will come. It's like the, the magic wand. When t- mm-hmm. and, and the interesting thing is, you know, uh, there there is never like a number where you get to and then, you know, everything's fine because then you realize, you know, you get to that number and then it's like, shit, everything is still the same around me. It probably wasn't mm-hmm. enough yet. Right. And it just, it becomes this, needle of perfection that continues to move until you die, which Mm. is, I mean, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental health issue. And that's the reason is because people will chase it. And it's particularly anorexia that Mm. leads to the highest rate of death because often correlated with an anorexia diagnosis is that chase to 
being so underweight that your body gives out. It can't survive it anymore. But that's that's how it works. I think about it like there's this I watch a lot of like planet Earth and there's this mushroom called cordyceps that yeah. is like animal I forget what kind of animal it's like ants or something, they eat it and then their their brain is completely altered and their the poison makes them go basically they go die to feed the mushroom. Like it take it's like mind control. And it happens like it's on, you know, the most recent planet Earth, I think. And so it makes me feel like that, like Mm -hmm. I had no control. And if somebody else didn't help pull me out, there wasn't going to be a way that I would because I couldn't see the outcome because my brain had been drugged Mm -hmm. by this thing that was eventually going to kill me. And so what actually helped you regain and retake that ownership of your life to say, like, you know, that it's enough like I've had enough like I don't want to live this way anymore I think a lot of it honestly came from so most of my life I had kind of like I mentioned these relationships with people that I didn't really enjoy Mm -hmm. I was in a relationship for eight or nine years we started dating we were like 13 or 14 so you know as real as it is when you're 14 but we were together for eight years all through college and I was, you know, supposed to marry him. We had this whole plan and like, it was the same friends from high school, the same Mm -hmm. friends that I didn't really care about. I was never in love with him. Mm -hmm. I loved him. He's a wonderful human, but I was never in love with him. And Mm -hmm. I was never, I was never fully in a relationship where people saw me, not even with my mom. Like even as my mom got sober and worked on herself and came back in, nobody got to see the real me. And then Right after college, I went to Nicaragua for a few weeks, and we were doing some, like, helping the community provide, basically, education around um, things like puberty or Mm -hmm. things that, like, there was a lot of misconceptions around and trying to help think about, like, how did their health system want to approach this in ways that could be helpful. And so I met my now husband on this trip, and he was the first person that, from the moment we met, it was like he saw everything about me and and I hated it and I ran as hard and fast as I could. I mean, as much as I could considering our hotel rooms were like, you know, three rooms apart. But we I ended up getting really sick on that trip and How like convenient. so sick. I couldn't even <laughs> I know, right? I got um so I got what's called dengue fever, which oh, okay. is basically its nickname is breakbone fever. So you feel like you're, you literally feel like you're dying. And I couldn't even shower because it hurt so bad to be touched by anything. So I'm like, my legs are hairy. I can't eat anything. I look disgusting, right? Everything that I have idealized about being beautiful just completely, literally went down the shitter because I was so sick. I couldn't, I couldn't uphold the standards of my eating disorder. Mm. And part of my eating disorder loved this because I couldn't eat very much. I couldn't do anything. And it was like, oh, my God, look how successful you're being right now. But he would every day just come and make sure that I was drinking enough water. He would mm-hmm. come sit by me on the bed and never, never crossing any lines, just being there with me and showing me the thing that scared me most, which is I think somebody loving me just because mm. I'm a human. And I would love to say that I just got this motivation internally and I just woke up one day and was like, fuck this, I'm worth it, everything's great. The problem is for so many of us when we're groomed to feel like that's not the case and our self-talk is so embedded in that we're not worth it, 
unfortunately, a lot of us need somebody on the outside to show up and do that. It doesn't always have to be a partner, right? It could be a therapist. It could be a friend. It could be a coworker. But somebody that's like, I see you. I'm like, you are worthy. And as our relationship evolved and he would hold up the mirror to a lot of the things that I spent many years trying to fight, Mm -hmm. I started to really get a little bit of empowerment. Like maybe I could fall apart to have the chance to rebuild myself in the way that I want to. Maybe Mm -hmm. I didn't have to keep pretending like everything was together. At that time I was still, I had, I think my second word in life was doctor. And so everybody, I would get like Build-A-Bears with doctors on them and like doctor stuff on everything I did. Everything about being a doctor sounded terrible to me, but I pursued it all through undergrad. I was applying to med school. I was doing all these things. And so it just started to become this like, maybe I don't have to do that. And then maybe about six months after I started to get to that place with him. And so we were, we had been together for maybe a year at this point. My cousin, who was also one of my absolute best friends, I had lived with him. That was the family I had lived with. He was two weeks younger than me. We had the same friend group. He was killed. And so I was starting to have this moment of like, maybe I don't have to keep pretending. Maybe I can be me. Maybe I can do these things. And I was going through a lot of loss as I was making those changes. I had ended this other relationship. I started dating my now husband, Jordan. I lost all my friends. There was, I was called names. I was, you know, all these things that I thought were supposed to be there weren't. And then this one solid person in my life was gone. And so shortly after that, I had gone to, it sounds like a ridiculous movie, but I had, I had gone to Nepal in his honor with his, um, his partner, the girl he had been dating at the time, because they wanted to go and do some work there. And he had always wanted to go do this with her. So like, I will do it. And there was this moment where we were sitting on top of this mountain. And I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't really have a lot of like religious ties or anything like that. And I don't really know my, my stance on spirituality yet. I'm Mm -hmm. still figuring that out as a human. But Something happened where I just, I was sitting there, I looked out and I got this sense of calm and it was like, I was ready to start taking that control back, to start Mm. saying, I already feel so unloved and disconnected and I've been trying it this way for so long. I've tried it this other way for so long and all that's happening is I'm losing myself even more. And so what would be the worst that would happen if I tried this other way for a while? And I think, you know, the the safety part of it was I kn- I'm a really good pretender. And so mm-hmm. if it doesn't work and I have to go back to being the person I can, but it sort of got to this point where it's like the predictable shittiness that I lived in. And that's kind of how I, I phrase it is like, it's predictable. It's, it's comfortable because it feels safe because I know how to do this. I don't like this mm-hmm. life, but I can do it. The idea of leaving that for something that was like, I'm going to drop out of, not drop out of med school, but drop out of the application process. Since Mm -hmm. I withdrew all my applications from med school, I was like, I don't know what I want to do in life. I suddenly started uprooting things. And what was so key for me was having this one person in my life that no matter what just kept showing up and was consistently loving me. And as my mom became more able to, my mom became another person in my life like that. And then I started to see as I opened the door to people that could make me feel loved, fully, Mm -hmm. truly loved, more of those people started to come in. And so it was more like 
it was a reinforcement of what I had always longed for becoming a possibility. And so I think that then allowed me to build the momentum to be like, oh, not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to love me, mm-hmm. but I am likable. I am lovable. And I can work on loving myself enough that the one relationship we're in our entire lives, the one to ourselves, can actually feel fruitful and connectable in mm-hmm. some way. And what was the moment that you actually opened that door for loving yourself? I think, honestly, it came down to the day that I finally... So it's it's like breaking up with a bad boyfriend mm-hmm. when you're leaving an eating disorder. We, you As you become aware of it, right? Like I knew it was happening, but I felt so stuck. You write a lot of breakup letters. And then, and literally I wrote actual tangible letters on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And then something happens and you call them again, right? Like, just come back one more time. Like, I'm sorry, I still want to be with you. And there was this day that I just was like, I can't, I don't like, I wish I could tell you that there was this like thing that happened that sparked it and that it was like a special day or something like really like key happened. But it was just like one day I woke up and I was like, today has to be the day I say goodbye and not see you later. Mm. And I think that in my brain to, I have the right to live a life without this pain became the moment I started saying, I have the right to love myself. And to be fair and to be clear, I don't love every part of myself. I don't know if if that will be possible, maybe one day that will be the case, but it was about instead seeing all the pieces of myself that had been broken down for so long and just starting with one piece of myself mm-hmm. and picking that part up and saying, I can love and nurture this part of me. And then eventually put that piece connected to another one and say, and I can love and nurture these two pieces of me. And over time that can grow But I'm also patient with myself and I'm not upset with myself, but there's still parts of myself that I don't love because I think that also means I'm human Mm. and that's what the whole process of living means, you know, and and evolving into that sense of self-love. No, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm really loving the fact that you're mentioning this. I, I feel like, you know, this this might become like a false expectation also and um for people to believe, you know, you will, you will, whatever it is you're challenged with, there will be just this one moment, this magical moment. And then, you know, everything will just be revealed and everything makes sense. And, and yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think for most of the people, I mean, maybe you're lucky, but it will be like one topic, you know, one belief that you will get like some maybe really deep insight in but it won't resolve the whole story. And I think it's important for people to realize that things take time. It's like an accumulation of, you know, insights, of thinking, of making, creating space for yourself to reflect of, you know, all those different experiences that you make. And then I think eventually your, your brain picks up on that and it can actually like, it's like a puzzle. The more pieces you get together, the clearer you are. And then maybe one day, like you said, you wake up and then you're like, you know what? (laughs) I deserve a different life. 
Yeah, and I think there's this one person who I worked for a really long time at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and part of my job was to help create community support around mental health, getting mm-hmm. people talking about it, removing stigma. And this one person that I worked with, her name's Maria, she told me that for her it was it's really easy for her brain to put a lot of check marks in the loss column, in the failure column, mm-hmm. in the I suck column. And if she tried to every day wake up and move all of those check marks into the other side, it wouldn't be feasible and possible. And it would feel so overwhelming, she would just lie down. And so instead, she said, it's about finding a way to put one check in your win column, one check in your success column. And so for me, I think it was that. It was waking up every day and saying, okay, like my, my eating disorder brain would say, if, I, if anything happens, like if I eat too much or I eat the wrong thing for breakfast, your whole day sucked. And now mm. you might as well just go full-blown eating disorder. Or, you know, if something happens as a challenge, then you have to go all back in. It was very all or nothing. And so it was instead this changing in my brain of, is there one small thing I can have today? Like maybe today I did restrict or I did binge or I did purge, but is there one moment, like one thought I can have where I can challenge it and say, maybe there's another way to think about it. And not even necessarily is it going from you're so disgusting to you're so beautiful, but you're so disgusting to you're human or you're so disgusting to you feel disgusting. And that would make sense given everything that's happened in your life. Mm -hmm. And so it was finding these ways of like getting these small changes. And I think it is that it's the accumulation of small wins that then became this like one day that I woke up and it was like, all right, I don't want to do this anymore because I had started to build up in my head that I could even have the choice that I didn't want to do it anymore. And not not to like oversimplify it and again say because eating disorders aren't a choice, but the choice to fight, right? The choice to show up and then put the work in, which then led to the journey I'm still on, which is the never-ending journey of recovery of, mm-hmm. you know, picking up even more pieces. But I at least felt like I had the right to step into the ring and maybe I failed some days. Yeah. But to me, failing also was a sign I was showing up, you know? And I think this is so important, uh, what you just mentioned, the shifting from I am to I feel. Because Mm -hmm. this is what we're telling ourselves, like, this is what what I'm trying to emphasize throughout, you know, whenever I have the chance, really, that, you know, this, if you say I I am something. This is like you're making that a part of you, a part of your identity. Yeah. And, you know, we're so um, abusive with ourselves, the way we talk to ourselves. Like mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't we wouldn't allow anybody else to talk to us like th- that way. But we are usually the ones who are the harshest with ourselves, the most critical. And um, for your mind, it makes such a difference if you say I am or, or I feel because mm-hmm. you can change your feeling. But to your mind, you cannot change your identity. And so right. you create something that you just you just accept as your default being. And so I just want to encourage everybody to, you know, pay attention to those. Because, you know, we, we even like say it so lightly, like, oh, I'm, I'm so stupid or I'm so whatever. Um, but you're not. But if you say it like a hundred times to yourself, even if it's just a thought, then, you know, mm-hmm. your mind will actually, you know, believe it and make it a reality. Mm-hmm. And um, 
the other thing, what was it? There was well, and a... I think it's... Yes, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, I think it's also that piece of our brains are uh, very complex, but also very simple. And so mm-hmm. our brains are a process of habituation and feedback loops. And so the more we say it, the more we're telling ourselves those things, the more we create feedback loops that it feels like that is the reality mm-hmm. because it's all you've given your, chan- your brain the chance to see or to hear. And so then it's even harder to change it because you've already built exactly. that in your brain. And so it's not just self-talk it's legitimately how your brain becomes wired so yeah I think it's super important in reminding people to just take note of that a lot of what I do with clients is I'll tell them I want you to write down every single thing you said Mm -hmm. to yourself today and then I want you to label it as fact or opinion Mm -hmm. and good bad or neutral and let's look at how many negative opinions your brain has said to you today And then sometimes I'll even make them listen to me read it out loud and just have them tell me what it feels like when they hear Mm -hmm. it when somebody else reads it or have them read it to me, right? And so, yeah, I think it's just, it's a really important point that you're bringing up. And it's awesome to hear that that's a huge emphasis on what you're doing in general. Yeah, because I feel like it's so important. Like once you start um, gaining a certain... um, or knowledge about you know the the power of it and you pay attention to how people talk to themselves and even you like me myself you know sometimes um i really feel like this is this is something that we really have the power over and this is something that you can change quite let's say easily or yeah and the other thing i i remember um like that you mentioned you know start putting more more positives more check marks even if it's like just one thing a day in your in your jar and i feel like the practice mm-hmm. of gratitude is something that is this is so powerful like you said just you know you don't have to maybe start by loving you know 100% of yourself but what is something that you can be grateful for yourself today it's also another mm-hmm. thing that i really want to give people listening to um because i mean let's face it we're 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 like uh, living 24 hours a day right i don't know how many seconds that is right now but there's so many things happening <laughs> that you can be grateful for and even if it was just you know that you allowed yourself an extra minute in bed or that you know you smiled at the other person in the bus or in the train whatever it was just something There's always something that you can be grateful for about yourself. And so just, you know, start mm-hmm. focusing on that, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And so what would be some advice from your side now? I mean, having gone through that experience yourself, but also now being a therapist and having, you know, the expertise mm-hmm. about, you know, the functioning of the mind, etc. What is something that you could recommend both, you know, people who are, struggling themselves with uh, eating disorder or um, PTSD and people, you know, people who are involved with people who are struggling with it. Because sometimes I'm, I can imagine people feeling like very, you know, also paralyzed because you don't really know how to help that person, how to best be there Mm -hmm. for them. So what is something that you can recommend or a piece of advice that you can give to both I think two pieces. One, if anybody hasn't at some point read or watched something by Brene Brown, I think mm. 
familiarizing themselves with some of the research she's done on shame and the way she's talked about it, because the reality is that shame is bred in silence, that the only way that we can disrupt the problem-saturated narrative or the negative self-talk that we exist in is by shedding light on the parts of ourselves that shame has worked so hard to keep shut. And so, you know, going back to that paintbrush poem, it's the willingness to show up and to take off each of those layers. And so I think it's twofold. It's one, we have to start telling our story. We have Mm. to find somebody, right? Whether, I mean, obviously I'm a huge proponent in therapy or I wouldn't do this professionally. And so, I mean, it can be a therapist, but it can be anybody. It's finding somebody and just start start saying those things out loud, even practice saying them out loud to yourself because they they get less power in your brain when you do that. And so I think it's it's doing that part of it. But then I think the work comes in by moving from a place of judgment to a place of curiosity mm-hmm. because this is it's taken years and for many of us decades to build up these negative beliefs about ourselves and to exist in the ways that we do and to feel so stuck in our shame narrative. And so to imagine dismantling decades of work, essentially, in a day is never going to happen. And so instead, it's just saying, how can I be curious about where these things came from and and who recorded these tapes originally mm. for me, right? What were some of those instances? Like, I don't, I don't blame those people, and I know those interactions or those experiences or the culture and the community that I lived in helped shape the way that those tapes played for me. And so it's a lot of that talk about what's going on and then get curious about where it came from. And in the midst of doing that, start to ask yourself, what are my intrinsic core values and how do those maybe differ from the values that I've been told or in many cases, pushed to feel like I have to emphasize? And how do I reconcile the fact that those two might be different? And as you do that, you start to make headway and make moves towards how do I live within those values that are true to me and silence those tapes that have been playing on repeat in my head for so long Mm -hmm. and move out of the shadows that shame has created for so many years. Mm. I love that. What would you say has given you yourself the courage to, you know, share your story and really, you know, something that you've been hiding for so long, you know, all the different personalities and all the different, let's say, uh, characteristics, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, the chameleon to really, you know, open up about it and really, you know, just show yourself the way you are and say, you know, Mm. this is something that I've been dealing with. And um, yeah, just know ha- have really the courage and the and the the confidence to do that because i feel like you know a lot of people have problems or feel feel uh afraid of sharing something that is way less you know that has way less baggage attached to it and mm-hmm. um is maybe way less problematic but something you know, of like admitting to having an eating disorder or something like that, I think it's probably, you know, huge, a huge burden. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think for me, I got really lucky the first time I ever said out loud that I 
had an eating disorder, the person I told didn't react. Like it was, we it was like, okay. And then we moved back on and had a conversation. <laughs> and I was like, what? All that stress for nothing? Like what? <laughs> and then I like decided to tell some friends. And the same thing happened. We had gone on a brewery tour. We were sitting down. We were having beers. And I suddenly was like, I just want to tell you that I have, I'm working on my recovery from an eating disorder and it's really hard for me and you two are really close to me and I just want you to know what's going on. And they were like, okay, what do you need? And then went right back to the conversation. Like it wasn't in a, um, in a way that was dismissing. They wanted to Mm -hmm. be there, but it didn't change the way that they treated me. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the courage comes from the more you do something, the more comfortable you are, right? Like the first time we're going to ride our bike without training meals, nobody's 100% confident, but if you don't do it the one time, you're never going to get to the time you can do it without a problem. And so, so much of it was just detaching the power from the story in the sense Mm of part of who I am and me telling that doesn't change who I am as a person. And the reality is those things all are a part of why I am the way that I am and who I am in life. And so I think that was a big part of it. But then the other piece is realizing if I don't, who will? Like in the sense that for most of us, the people we look up to or relate to the most or learn from or feel most connected to are the people that are truly vulnerable and are sharing those things. And so Mm. if I'm not willing to do that, how can I, how can I expect to make a change in this world? How can I expect to, in this world specifically around like beauty and cultural norms and Mm. ideals, if I'm not sharing my experiences with it and as a therapist, how do I make space to normalize issues that people struggle with if I'm not also owning the fact that I've gone through my own things? Because if I don't, all I'm doing is creating this dynamic of you versus me. I'm superior. I've got all my shit together because I mm. get to sit on this side of the room and tell you all of these things. And you're the one that's broken and has the problems and it's my job to fix you. And the reality is we, none of us are broken. All of us are mm. on a journey and we have a story All of us are experts on our own lives and we don't need to be fixed. We just need to be nurtured and supported. And so I think for me, it's a lot of the more I share, the more humanity comes through and the more opportunity I have to connect with people. Because if one person hears me talk about it and feels like they can tell somebody else about their eating disorder or maybe they're going through something else that they can talk through it it makes it easier for them because someone else has already done it. Mm. It's this, you know, like the leader mentality and it's just, then it gives you permission to follow. And the second thing I'll say off of what you said is I also know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have varying degrees of a story, right? Mm. So for a really long time, even, yeah, the labels sound overwhelming, right? The labels of PTSD have generalized anxiety disorder and eating disorder, like, they sound really intense. Mm-hmm. But my story in the moments, like it became normal, right? Mm-hmm. So it didn't seem that bad to me because it was my normal. And so I think it's also important for everybody to realize no matter how quote unquote good you feel like your life is, you deserve to talk about what's hard for you. That struggling mm-hmm. is a part of living and talking about those things and feeling like you are deserved, deserving of somebody listening to you and holding that space for you, not putting it on, again, this like 
never ending spectrum of whose problems are worse and who gets more priority because all that does is does the same chase as what the perfectionism of my eating disorder did. And so it's saying if the worst thing that's happened to you is you feel like, you know, you haven't ever felt really fully good in a job or you haven't ever really felt like you've had a great relationship, that is equally as important and valid as somebody coming in and talking about significant trauma because it's your hard stuff and you need to be able to know that that's your story and that's okay if you struggle regardless of what it looks like. Oh my God, this was so good. Thank you for saying that. Like, to be quite frank, um, me, I myself was was uh, thinking for, for quite a long time, you know, um, thinking of starting a business and, you know, you need a story. You're Like you said, people need to connect to something. And I was always thinking like, you know, there's not like... I felt like you had to have some major, you know, trauma or some, you know, some kind of mm -hmm. situation in your past for you to, you know, like a exactly to justify, like to have like this big change and to justify that now you're helping people. Right. And I was like, okay, I never, never had yeah. anything like really bad happening to me. And I'm so grateful for that. But, just, you know, like what's the hook in, in air quotation mm -hmm. marks, right? But then I was like, yeah, but still, you know, there's so many people like me who are, who are going through something, like you said, something that was hard for me, you know, and I feel like everybody's not feeling enough ever. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But everybody's just experiencing it in a, in a different way and is experiencing like this holding back in a different way. And so I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, um, no matter how you grew up, however bad or good you classify that yourself, but we're all struggling with something. We're all challenged with something. And, you know, the the important thing about it is for people to share it and to have somebody, you know, to talk to about. Because like you mentioned also earlier um, from Brene Brown, like, it's the worst thing that you can do is to keep it to yourself and um, hope that, you know, it will just resolve magically. Right. Right. And so um, in 2016, um, you founded hashtag reclaim beauty and kind of creative. And um, mm -hmm. uh, I would love for you to share what, you know, what, especially the Reclaim Beauty is all about because I feel like it's a fantastic project. And um, what what also made you or motivated you to, to start it because you, you are and you were and you still are working as a classical therapist. But what made you mm -hmm. take those steps into also starting a business and starting this project? So... Before anything happened with Reclaim Beauty, I had launched Kinda Creative, and Kinda Creative was a platform for me to sell and create art, which for me was my primary way of processing trauma. So mm -hmm. it was an extension of my healing now and a way to connect more with others. And then I started really moving into public speaking and doing a lot of community-based work. And so From all of that came this idea of, with a few other friends, a few other artists, we were going to do a show that was talking about beauty and talking about different cultural concepts and constructs of beauty and kind of pointing out where things were a little fucked up. <laughs> we applied to do an art show and we were denied 
based on our project proposal. And so I called them and I was like, hey, can you give me more feedback as to why this was rejected? Because I thought it was an amazing idea. And the place told me that the concept, they were too nervous about, and I'm paraphrasing, Mm -hmm. but they didn't know what would come from opening the doors to a conversation like this. And they didn't know if they wanted to be a part of creating that conversation. Like the Mm -hmm. topic could be too big and too intense and they didn't want to take that on. I was like, I don't do well with hearing no now. I used to because I would expect it. But now I was like, well, fuck you. I'm going to do it anyways. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I was going to, I had friends that had places I could do an art show at. And Mm -hmm. so the other two artists were like, kind of moved on they were fine with it but I was like I want people to so it started as hashtag reclaim beauty or the reclaim beauty project and the reason I picked this name was I hated this idea that people always talked about beauty is either this thing that's on the outside or in a way to comfort us they would say oh beauty is what's on the inside Mm -hmm. which is true but it's also bullshit to say that we don't experience the world physically and visually and all other ways and so it was about let's let's reclaim the word beauty. Let's make it our own, which is a really key thing that you do in your trauma. You reclaim your narrative, your story. And so that's a lot of where the, the concept came from. And it started as the hashtag because I, at first it was just going to be a social media movement. I was going to have people post a photo of themselves, either of their face with no filters or a part of their body they were working on loving or learning to love with one word, just one word to represent what did it feel like to take the photo? How did they feel looking at the photo? Mm -hmm. And then it would be this thing that would be up on social media. And then I would use these photos to create visual art representations in to do an art shows. And it, from there, it just boomed. Like I would get emails with like printout of six page stories of people's trauma, of somebody's C-section scar you know, learning to love that part of their body because they lost the baby. And it wasn't just the fact that they had a scar and they were not formed in the way now that was beautiful, but what did it mean for them to look down at this scar that to them was a reminder of their failure because they felt like they did something wrong. Or somebody's photo of their face for the first time with no makeup on. I had a woman in her early 60s and she said it was the first time she had ever taken a photo without makeup on since she was a young kid, that she would never let herself do that because it wasn't right and so her word was unsafe and so I would get these things and so I I started thinking we have to do more we have to do more and then a photographer reached out to me and was like let's take this to the next level and so now a major part of the project Mm -hmm. and and I've moved about a year ago so I'm not working with this photographer anymore but when I was in Wisconsin we were we would just book photo shoots we had a person that donated the space to us We had people sign up and then the whole thing was they did a photo shoot with as little clothes on as they felt comfortable in. And then I interviewed them afterwards. And the idea of the project then became how do we showcase the beauty on the inside and the outside simultaneously so that when people would go to the website and they click on these profiles, they get to see both happening in tandem on the page. And so it just became this place that I didn't intend for this to happen. It all mm-hmm. was just somebody told me no. And I was like, that's the problem with our culture is we, we shut the door on things that seem too hard. And so let's talk about it. And then, I mean, and then you already said it, it's just, it's continued to evolve. And now it's, you know, so many more facets than what it was to begin with, which is just amazing. Yeah. And, you know, just 
the few things that you've mentioned from people's stories, I mean, it just showcases again. And that's why just making this remark again, you know, how brutal we are with ourselves. It's like mm-hmm. to to just think that a woman went, I don't know, like she's 60 years old, but maybe she went like, let's say, 50 or 45 years. It doesn't matter, 40 years. It's like such a long time to yeah. you know with live with this constant actually thought of you being unsafe just being without makeup mm-hmm. that's just mm-hmm. insane and so what what is the the project what what is the project aim at right now because i know you're you're intending to make a documentary out of that Yeah, so we wrapped the documentary, actually, and we have it ready to go. And so what, how it all came to be is I started doing more and more of these interviews, and what kept coming out was it seemed like everybody's sense of self changed in elementary and middle school. Hmm. Some in high school, but, I mean, middle school was like this turning point for everybody. It was like, which makes sense when we look at developmentally, it's when we start to have this, like, more individualized sense of self. We start to see ourselves as a, as a person, our relationship to our body changes, all of that. And so I was like, we need to think about how do we have this conversation with incoming generations as a part of our culture, right? How do we keep this conversation going for all of us now and work on reclaiming what this means, but to also empower young people to not bully, to not be so hard on themselves to not perform? How do we make space for schools, right? I mean, I can remember teachers talking about their diets, drinking Diet Cokes or saying they felt so fat after uh, eating too much on Thanksgiving, right? Or complaining about coming out with a Weight Watchers meal. And so I remember the adults were doing the same thing, right? And the adults were not modeling the safe space and the kids were I mean even just think of the ways in school and I'm sure anyone listening to this can can imagine times where the kid that's dressed in you know all black super quiet in my day like people would label them emo which Mm. was like such a bullshit way right to call somebody because it just meant like you were emotional and not stable but like just because somebody preferred wearing black and maybe they listened to a certain type of music they were treated differently than the kid who was dressed in, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch, again, back when I was in high school and what was, like, cool. And they're all, like, in their sporty polo shirts and they're sitting up in the front of the room and they're paying attention. Or how did the kids in bigger bodies get treated versus smaller bodies? And so the documentary was entirely crowdfunded. We filmed it and we showcased different stories of people with a variety of intersecting identities. We had someone who identifies as trans. We had an African-American male who came over here from Nigeria. We had uh, an undocumented immigrant from Mexico who's currently living in the U.S. Like we had people that started telling their stories of what did it mean to be whatever their identities were. Mm. And to talk about that from the standpoint of how do we empower conversations with young people. And so what I've been working on in the last six months, and I just finished it not too long ago, is writing a a guidebook that goes along with it for schools because the intention is that schools can watch the documentary itself is only it's like under 15 minutes and that's intentional. So you Mm -hmm. could watch it in a class period and have 30, 40 minutes of discussion. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And so it's really meant to be this freely accessible thing to open the door to conversation. And then the guidebook gives them a po- or a pretest to see how their students feel. It gives them uh, definition sheets and fact sheets about all the different diagnoses that people are struggling with at that time and how to be more inclusive as a school. It gives them ideas on how to make safe spaces for people in different body sizes. And so it's the next leg of the project is now we have to start working with some schools and we have to really work on getting it in there because our hope is that then we can get funding to do more videos that are mm. more focused on let's talk specifically about racial and ethnic backgrounds mm-hmm. and what does that mean for somebody in terms of identity and their sense of beauty. Let's talk about the like fat phobia in our culture. Let's talk about all these very specific things that then schools can like pick and choose. Um, so I yeah, I mean, that. it's very exciting. Yeah. I love that because especially, um, you know, like you mentioned, we're, we're also so quick when it comes to actually, you know, judging those kids. But the thing is those kids, you know, they weren't born with that. <laughs> they didn't just wake up one day right. at six years old thinking, Oh, You know, that girl is ugly or that boy is overweight and what's up with that color and blah, 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 blah. Right. They've all learned that. And so I just want to also, you know, shout out to all the all the moms, all the parents who 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 might be listening. You know, you're the example for your kid and whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. they're bullying. That's what you have showed and taught them at home. They wouldn't even know how to do that if they hadn't experienced that prior mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. what would you say you know it sounds like really um that the kind of creative and also reclaim beauty you know they're really like going super well and um what would you say from your side what what do you think is like the success factor or the thing that is most helping you you know drive those projects, drive them to, you know, really touch a quite big, large audience? I think it's been really working on creating a different relationship with fear. It's about thinking about fear as a necessary component of life, right? Fear is protective in many ways. And when it goes untamed and unmanaged, fear can take over. And so I had to really work my relationship with fear to think about how do I use it in a way that I can leverage that anxiety or that worry in a way that I can move myself forward. And in a lot of that, I've had to redefine what does success mean? So when Mm -hmm. I started public speaking, I mean, I first started off, I was so grateful that I had a community of people that were willing to support me. And there was a a local place called the Dream Bank that invited me in and they were like, we'll help you get started, right? Mm -hmm. And so I had people that I had to pitch the shit out of myself, but people were willing to be there with me as I'm figuring it out. And at first it was like, oh, only, you know, three people came or only these things happened. And I think what I had to do very early on in my business is to think is success wrapped up in all these external factors and in everybody else's response or Mm -hmm. is success in me showing up every day working as hard as I can and putting out things that can be there for people when they need them and so that change to me I think has allowed me to be so much more successful so when I do an art show 
my success of an art show, like my definition is if I have three good conversations during an art show, mm. rather than it used to be all sales. Did anybody buy anything? How many people stopped in my booth? And now it's like, people are going to know I'm here when they're ready. And if it's meant for them, they're going to buy it. I have a speaking event or I, you know, I do online coaching and training. It has nothing to do with whether or not my programs sell out as to whether or not they're good because I didn't make them for them, right? Mm. I made them to be there for people at the right time when they need it. And the success for me is just putting out the tools and being present and being authentic. And so I think that's the biggest thing for anybody is you've got to really rework your definition with fear and think about mm. what is fear how is fear guiding you and how is fear hindering you? And then as I rework that and I start to move with it rather than against it, how do I need to redefine or mold my definitions of success to align with my values and to trust that my job and my purpose is not about being liked or loved or the most popular or the best because none of that is ultimately why I'm doing this, right? Mm -hmm. My job is to create a ripple and to trust that that ripple will cause change because I'm doing what's right for me and putting out good things into the world. Mm. Awesome message. So if there was one thing that you could, uh, let's say, um, transfer into everybody or any woman's <laughs> mind all around the world, like one message that you would like everybody to know, um, what would that one message be for women? I mean, I think if I could just get everybody to believe it, mm -hmm. it would just be that you are worthy, mm -hmm. that you are worthy of love, you are worthy and deserving of support and success and showing up and that that worth is inherent within you because you exist, not because of what you do. And so to move from worth as the content that you've done in your life, right? The bullet point list or the resume of all of your credentials and the things you've done well to you in the context of your life and everything you've overcome and how you show up every day and that being where your worth is derived from. Hmm. So beautiful. And the other question is that I always like to wrap things up. If, you know, Tomorrow you'd be gone, but you would have the chance to send three pieces of wisdom to your six-year-old self that you would like her to know about going through life, what life is all about, or about herself. What would those three things be that you would like little Kira to know? I think one is that not everyone's going to like me. Mm -hmm. And whether or not somebody likes me is not a testament to if I'm a good person or not. Second is that it's okay to not have my shit together all the time. That I don't have to be performing at every stage to feel like I'm doing amazing because the moments I've had the most growth were the moments where I let everything hit the floor And I could reflect on what was going on. And the third thing would be to be more patient with myself, to realize that, you know, I called the Reclaim Beauty Project a project on purpose. It's a project because I see it as being this continuous process, this evolving and, 
and ever-changing thing. And I think that is this metaphor for life, that if I could have, if I could tell my six-year-old self or anybody's six-year-old self mm-hmm. that, it would be that things are meant to evolve and to ebb mm-hmm. and flow and that it's, I don't have to rush it or force it. And, and sometimes it's okay to just be. Mm. That is so true. So Kira, if people got interested in the project and working with you, checking out your work, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can find the Reclaim Beauty Project at reclaimbeauty.org or they can find me on Instagram at at Reclaim Beauty. Mm-hmm. If they wanted to check me out on Kind of Creative, I my Instagram on at Kind of Creative. They can find me on Facebook as well for both projects. And my website is Kind of Creative, both with a K, dot com. Awesome. Kira, thank you so much for being a part of this today. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation and um, I really hope that people who really listened got a lot out of it because there were so many beautiful things and so much, you know, depth in it that uh, I really hope it will like, you know, transpass to people out there. So thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to be a part of this really amazing work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the Thrive Podcast and spending your precious time with us. If you found this episode valuable and think that others could benefit from it too, please share it with your network, friends, and family. I would also be forever grateful if you could go over to iTunes and leave us an honest review about the show. And if you have a comment, question, or topic that you would like to see covered on the show, go to algamuller.com slash thrivepodcast. So see you next week, girl. And until then, don't forget that you were meant to thrive.